Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello, glowworms, and welcome to the very first episode of my new podcast, The Vanity Project. Over the next 10 episodes, I'll be sitting down with some exciting movers and shakers from the worlds of entertainment, activism, politics, and more. If you don't know already, I am a London-based diva, a drag queen cabaret songstress, a comedienne, and at this point, basically an unofficial Celine Dion impersonator. My shows are heady affairs, boozy sing-alongs at the piano, raucous parties packed with vocal acrobatics and glittering late-night cabarets full of hijinks and sequins. I love performing, but I do believe that drag queens can offer more than just a wild night out. I believe drag queens occupy a unique space within our culture. We are liminal characters on the outskirts of the mainstream, and I don't believe that that's a bad thing. Like mystical shamans from ancient cultures, the drag queen offers a marginal perspective that is of inherent human value. It's surely because drag queens grew up marginalised themselves in some way, usually by being gay or queer, and having a specific perspective and wit which enables us to both see and gently savage the orthodoxies of the mainstream. In recent years, drag has become a massively popular pastime for young queer people. And who could blame them? Drag as a process combines fantasy with self-actualization, vulnerability with warrior instinct. It's no surprise to me that drag so perfectly appeals to a generation who have already grown up curating versions of themselves on social media. But there is more to drag than simply being and feeling fabulous. I don't believe artists always need to have something to say to be of value. I think truth, beauty, joy are valuable enough on their own. But I do think that the best artists look outwards as well as inwards. And I suppose that's the reason that I'm here with The Vanity Project. This podcast's mission statement is simple. Do I find the guest interesting and do I think they will come to the conversation with good humour, ready to discuss their life and their work? Although I do love the sound of my own voice, I'm most excited really to listen and to learn from these fascinating people. Each week we'll feature a guest from the big wide world and then a light-hearted discussion afterwards with one of my pals from nightlife and the cabaret industries. We begin today with a legendary activist. I'm thrilled our first guest agreed to come on our inaugural episode of The Vanity Project. He's been campaigning for LGBT plus rights his whole life, for the right to be left alone by the police and the government in the 70s, to more recent struggles for recognition in law for gay marriage. Though never working alone, he has been a figurehead of much of the struggle of gay and indeed human rights for nigh on 50 years. That's my way of saying he's an elder statesman. He tirelessly pickets and protests, not just in the UK, but around the world, helping set up networks for dissemination of resources to enable LGBT plus to organise in far-flung countries. A documentary about his life, produced by Elton John and David Furnish, is on Netflix right now, and it's a fascinating insight into his work. I hope you enjoy this conversation with one of my personal heroes, Peter Tatchell. I am delighted today to be speaking to none other than Peter Tatchell, who has uh, had a life in activism for 54 years now. He has been at the forefront of causes which have affected the lives of thousands, millions of LGBT people and and people in general around the world. Um, Peter is the subject of a new Netflix documentary, Hating Peter Tatchell, produced by Elton John and his partner David Furnish. Indeed, the film was put together by Chris Amos, an Australian filmmaker whose bars I used to sing in here in London. I'm very excited to delve a bit deeper with Peter today. So, Peter, welcome to The Vanity Project. I am absolutely delighted to join you. Yes, I see you are emblazoned with the pride flag behind you. Uh, Very fitting. I've opted for a miserable blue background, which is actually my home. 
It looks beautiful to me, as do um, you. It's very strange to me to be on webcam to anyone and to have my clothes on. Uh, but rest assured, Peter, I am actually naked from the waist down. I hope you are too, but that's your own business uh -huh. for today. We'll just keep that little secret between ourselves, I think. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I, was, uh, I was so excited when I saw there was a documentary about you coming out. Um, and I watched it recently and was struck by a couple of things. Uh, one, it's amazing when somebody puts a narrative together around a person in documentary form because it runs a bit like a movie. And I felt at times watching Hating Peter Tatchell that if it were a movie, it could almost be a thriller. There's been so much tension and in many times risk and danger for the work that you've done uh, for those listening who don't know, you once uh, attempted, well, twice attempted a citizen's arrest on the president of Zimbabwe, Robert Mugabe. Um, you've sustained injuries for your activism. Has your life felt like a thriller? Can you tell us a bit more about that? Well, can I just say that um, I was astonished that Netflix agreed to host the documentary Hating Peter Tatchell. That was a big coup. Um, yeah. It's got out to an audience of millions worldwide. And my main reason for doing the documentary in collaboration with the director was that I want to show other people that social change is possible and give people some examples and tips on how to do it. So I really want out of this film to inspire a new generation of change makers. Um, yeah. Having, having said all that, I mean, to see myself in film, it's, it's an incredible honor um, I feel so lucky and privileged. Um, and the film itself is just a snapshot of maybe a dozen or so campaigns out of the thousands I've done over the last five decades. But I think it gives a real good feel. And I think um, the director has done a very good job in sort of distilling some of the key ideas and motivations and actions that I've done uh, over these many decades. Yeah, there's a real strategic approach to the work that you've done. It hasn't been scattergun, or it certainly hasn't seemed that way. And the documentary puts that forward very well. It's uh, strange to me to think of you as being a, a hated figure by some people. Of course, there were homophobes, or there still are homophobes. Um, so it, it follows that they would not be appreciative of a gay rights activist. But growing up, uh, I'm, I'm 32, so when I was growing up and discovering myself, I read about you as a hero in books on on gay history. Um, and so it was kind of surprising to me to watch this and realize that you've been on the receiving end of hostility for so long. It even sounds like it surprises you, the status that you, in, I suppose, enjoy now. You're an elder statesman of our movement. Well, um, when Chris Amos came across the idea of making a film about my activism, first of all, he was very surprised that it hadn't been done before. Mm -hmm. And then secondly, as he did his research, he was astonished, flabbergasted by the scale of venomous hatred directed against me because I simply stood up for LGBT plus rights. And of course, 30 or 40 years ago, 50 years ago, it was much more difficult. And we were, well, there were only a, a handful of us voices speaking out. Um, but I, I think it does also show that if you stick to your guns, if you stand up for what is right and don't let yourself be browbeaten by the critics, in the end, most people give you at least a grudging respect. And that's been my journey, really. I, I went from being you know, public enemy number one, the most hated man in Britain, to now being described by many people as a national treasure. And um, wow, that, that's, an, that's an incredible testament, an incredible statement. And I feel very humbled by it. But I would hasten to add that, of course, my work has been in collaboration with many others. So I view what I've done and helped achieve as just being part of a wider collaborative effort. And I want to pay tribute to the literally tens of thousands of LGBT plus people across Britain who've contributed to our fight for freedom. They have all made an important contribution, and it's been our collective effort that has brought about these changes where we are, have, have now reached a stage where Britain is one of the most progressive countries in the world. Not the most progressive because we're really lagging behind on trans issues, but, but we are one of the most progressive. And when you think of it, 
back in 1999, Britain had by volume one of the largest number of anti-gay laws of any country in the world. And yet 14 years later, with the advent of same-sex marriage, um, we had some of the best laws. <laughs> that is an extraordinary, phenomenal achievement. You know, it's, it's the fastest, most successful law reform campaign in British history. So thank you, everyone, LGBT and straight allies who've been part of this process. Yeah, I, f- I feel personally very lucky that in my life, because of the work I do as an entertainer, and I've been doing this for like 12 years, um, I work around a lot of the people who are of older generations who were involved in liberation movements, first in Glasgow, which is where I'm from, and then here in London. And so you can really feel that history. I mean, even when you can't walk into the Royal Vauxhall Tavern here in London without knowing about its history and its and its place in our community. Um, but it does strike me, as you say, it's quite incredible, the pace of change. Um, I think, well, I'd be curious to hear what you think underpins that. Is there uh, the pace of change for our uh, legislative change in, in the UK? Is that because there is an innate tolerance in all people that just needs kind of be t- to be teased out by circumstance? Because if, if that's the case, that's what your work's done. It's moved the needle of public opinion. Well, I certainly think it's true that no one is born bigoted. <laughs> that is right. learned behaviour. And that is why education in our schools against homophobia, biophobia and transphobia and against racism, misogyny and other forms of prejudice. That's why it's so important, because if we can educate young people at an early age to be understanding and accepting of others who are different, then they are much more likely to grow up to be you know, kind, gentle, gentle, kind people um, for the rest of their lives. Um, I also think that it's been very much the case that over the last, what, five decades, the fact that we've been willing to debate, you know, bigots, to show why they're wrong, to produce the counter evidence, that has helped shift the dial on public opinion. Now, there is, at the moment, quite a lot of young people say, well, we, we, don't, we don't debate bigots. Yeah. Uh, I can understand why you say that, but um, I don't think it works, you know. You have to debate bigots, not because you want to give them credibility or, you know, endorse them in any way. It's because you want to discredit them. You want yeah. to show why they're wrong. And you probably won't persuade the bigots. But when you debate, you probably will persuade many in the audience who perhaps are themselves bigoted or undecided. Now, let's give you an example. Many years ago, I did a BBC public debate. Uh, with a trans activist uh, against Julie Bindle, uh, right. who you know is very critical of trans people. Yeah. A lot of people said, do not debate her. You're giving her a platform. But I said, well, if we don't debate her, she'll just get a free reign to speak whatever she wants and no one will challenge her. So myself and Ros Caveney, a uh, trans woman, went on that program. We debated her and showed why she was wrong. And we won over the audience. Most people in the audience after uh, that debate were on the side of trans people. That was very different from how the view was before the debate, when most people were either critical or undecided. So it just shows that debating does work. It's a way in which we can help change public opinion. And there's something in that that, you know, that that one of the things people have respected about you and your work is that actually over time, when you take enough knocks, people start to acknowledge your toughness and your tenacity, um, which people like, you know, going into the lion's den of debate with people who are in opposition to you and taking, you know, taking homophobic slurs on the chin. I mean, I think in the documentary, there's clips of you being verbally abused on national television, which is shocking to think you know that's not the sort of thing we really have on our screens nowadays that somebody would speak to someone else on television in the way that they were speaking to you it was some sort of you know audience panel show thing um and i feel like actually you know when we want when we want rights when we want recognition we have to be prepared to fight for them there needs to be some courage involved um and it's not necessarily everybody's work it does take it take leaders to sort of push forward and do that 
yeah, it's, it's not pleasant. I mean, I've been on programs where um, homophobes have said that all LGBT plus people should be locked up and the key should be thrown away. I've been debating people who said we should be quarantined, that we are a threat yeah. to the health and safety of the nation. Uh, I've even been on programs where people have talked about gassing LGBT plus people. And that was really painful and distressing to hear. But I fought back. You know, I, 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 I tackled those people. I showed why they were wrong. And in almost every instance, I and other people have done similar things. We've won the debate and we've turned public opinion in our favor. And that is why that even before law reform started in 1999, um, even before then, we won the battle for public opinion. Right. We had the public on our side to change the law. And that was a very clearly worked out strategy. We yeah. knew that if we could persuade the public to support causes like an equal age of consent, like an end to the ban on LGBT plus people in the armed forces, if we could get public opinion on our side on those issues, then politicians would have greater confidence to change the law. And that's what we did. We, you know, we went to politicians and we said, look, a majority of the public, over two thirds, support an equal age of consent. Uh -huh. you, you're going you're gonna to be on the winning side if you vote for equality. And that's also a factor which helped persuade many MPs to finally vote down discriminatory laws. Yeah, so it's a sense of consensus building among the population. If you can change the culture, you almost take the sting out of the, of the legislative changes in terms of risk for the politicians. You know, because, you know, because as much as our elected representatives are some, you know, some people have the view that they are our leaders, they're, they're you know, they're our representatives. And actually, um, rather than them leading the way on, on specifically issues around norms and taboos, which for so many people, even talking about someone being gay was a taboo, actually you kind of need to change the environment culturally before they're going to be brave and, and do, you know, what they would now say is the right thing. One of the things that I love about... Um, yourself and also in Ireland, Panty Bliss, is that both of you share the view that successful campaigns enfranchise your opponent in your side. Like they, what you do is you make allies of the people who disagree with you over time. So the day after the referendum for gay marriage in Ireland, having won the referendum and a big successful day for Panty Bliss, she was asked by a journalist what would you say to the people who voted against gay marriage? And she said, oh, I, I just hope that in a couple of years they realise that they didn't have anything to be frightened of. You know, that to me, that conciliatory approach is something, I, I, think, it's, I think it's actually very noble to use a word we don't use very often um, and magnanimous. And we are relationship seeking creatures. So we should actually be aiming to bring people together. Um, and that seems to me to be, despite your work being, I suppose, antagonistic in a sense, uh, dramatic, certainly. Um, actually, it's always been underpinned by that desire to bring people together. Yeah, I mean, give you an example. Um, back in the early 1990s, Michael Patillo was the UK Defence Secretary. Right. He was in charge of witch hunting LGBT plus people out of the armed forces. Uh -huh. uh, myself and colleagues from Outrage, we um, protested and harassed him relentlessly, particularly when he sought um, to get elected to the seat of Kensington and Chelsea in a by-election. Everywhere he went, we were there to call him out over his persecution of LGBT plus members of the armed forces. Um, he was so embarrassed by it. He was no, so embarrassed at being called out as someone who was supporting discrimination. Um, nevertheless, he did win that seat. And I wrote to him after the election, urging him to reconsider his stance, urging him to come over to the side of equal rights for everyone. And uh, he didn't actually reply to that letter. But not long afterwards, surprise, surprise, he started voting for equality. Yeah. And I was so pleased. So I wrote another letter to him and thanked him. I said, Michael Patillo, 
I really appreciate the fact that you've changed your mind, that you're now supporting equality for LGBT, LGBT plus people. This means a lot. I want to thank you most sincerely. Um, some years later, we met up uh, by chance in a TV studio when we were doing uh, a program together. And Michael Batillo admitted that it was very, very tough, the, the campaign of protest that I, I and my outreach colleagues um, organized against him. But he did say that it did prompt him to, you know, rethink his stance. It, it, it pricked his conscience. And yeah. so that's why, you know, I always say the aim of a protest is not to, you know, keep bigots as bigots, it's to win them over, to turn enemies into allies. And that's the way we change society. You know, LGBT plus people, we are a small minority. Um, you know, we're a significant minority, but a small one. And we can only win when we get straight allies supporting us. So winning them over is really important yeah. as part of the strategy for victory. What's interesting to me is that within the LGBT community, the rifts between those who are unsure of how they feel or they're quite sure they feel negatively about gay lives, trans lives, the rift is often actually within the family. You know, that's not necessarily the case with a lot of ethnic tensions, uh, possibly the case with some religious tensions, but it is quite unique to the gay community. One of the reasons why I feel it's so clearly important to be compassionate to those who you disagree with is that pretty much everyone of my parents' generation took time to catch up with some of the legislative changes that have been brought about in the recent years. You know, a conversation with my parents about gay marriage when I was a teenager uh, would be a totally different conversation from the one I would have with them now. It's all very well to, 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 to drag an MP for their poor record on gay rights, but when our own parents would have potentially had a fairly poor record had they been MPs, and we're able to find the compassion to forgive our parents. Um, it seems like that's, some, that's something that we should integrate into our idea of what, what, what the healing that goes on after a campaign should be. Um, in the documentary, uh, we, get to, we are introduced to your family, um, to your mum, and, um, and there's a generational gap there. You're, you were raised in Australia uh, in a fairly religious home by the sounds of it, like quite quite traditional bit of fire and brimstone which i have had in my own uh my great aunts were very much of that cut from that cloth as well how has uh your activism affected your relationship with your mum well first let me say that you're absolutely right um an older generation comes to lgbt plus issues from a very different background experience and knowledge um so we have to make some allowances I'm not saying give them a free pass, but I think a gentle, kind um, reproach <laughs> um, yeah. is better than sort of treating them as, you know, terrible, bad people. Um, with my own family, um, because they were very devoutly religious, um, my, my family were you know, born again, Pentecostal Christians, um, as you say, hellfire and brimstone. Um, they believe the Bible was literally the word of God, every single word of it. So to win them over was a challenge. And although they never rejected me, um, but my mother and father were quite distressed and didn't feel comfortable with my homosexuality. Um, they both, <laughs> even to this day, still believe that it's a sin because the Bible says so, but that it's not a huge sin and that homophobia, biphobia and transphobia are also sins and that people who discriminate against LGBT plus people are not acting according to the word of God. So yeah. it's, a very, it's a very interesting sort of um, compromise. Um, you know, my mother's always taken the view that she wants people to you know, believe in the Bible and to be Christians, but that's a personal choice. It's up to up to each of us. Uh, that she says there's 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 no compulsion in religion. You know, it's up to each person to make that choice. So she would not want the law of the land 
to impose her Christian morality on everyone else. She would hope that the law of the land would reflect her views, but she wouldn't want to force anybody to comply with her views using the law of the land. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a fine distinction. But if more religious people adopted that, that attitude, making a distinction between their personal beliefs and the legal statutes of the country, then LGBT plus people would be in a much better place in many, many parts of the world. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like it's one of the things that we're lucky uh, in the UK that there, well, I say this, I'm aware that you had a lot of run-ins with bishops in the past uh, in your activism, but it feels to me in the time I've grown up, I was born in 1989, but it doesn't feel like the, there, there are strong religious forces for me in or influencing me and my peers by and large in relation to being gay. I think if in some parts of it, well, in, indeed in some religious communities, it would still be the case. Or if you're in certain parts of America where the, the political battleground seems to be fought still to some extent on religious uh, fault lines, it would be different. But, um, you know, I, as much as we can have a secular society, Britain is a secular society, I suppose, apart from that the Queen is the head of the church. Uh, <laughs> so I feel like we're, we're quite lucky in that here. Yeah, do you think, that, do you think that's part of why there was some flexibility around getting legislative change here? Is that in, pra in practice, we're not overly religious? Well, of course, all the major religions, Christianity, Judaism and Islam, opposed the gay law reforms of the last uh, two decades. Uh, on every single occasion, they lined up to defend discrimination. Yeah. Um, and they do have a lot of influence. And I'm sad to say that a lot of MPs pay undue deference to people of faith. You know, of course, they're entitled to their view, they're entitled to lobby, but I think they are given disproportionate influence when it comes to deciding government policy, not just right. on LGBT plus issues, but on women's rights and uh, other issues as well. Um, you know, we are in, in sort of for, in an informal sense, we are a secular society. But as you say, um, the Queen is the head of the Church of England. 26 bishops sit in the House of Lords unelected um, solely because they're members of the established church, the Church of England. A third of all schools in Britain are faith schools. And we know that in faith schools, the level of bullying of LGBT plus kids is much higher. Mm. And the degree of action taken to protect those kids is much lower. Wow. So, you know, religion still has a big influence. Gosh, I hadn't realised we had so many faith schools still. I, I wasn't at a faith school myself. I was a, a heathen. Um, yeah, that's so interesting. And of course, it makes sense to me that there would be less of an active approach in combating that style of bullying because it's not necessarily seen as unjust by, uh, well, by of some course, religion. Of course, none of these faith schools endorse bullying, but they don't no. take action against it. They often don't educate well, their pupils to an understanding of LGBT yeah. issues. And we know from the evidence that, um, you know, even now that LGBT plus relationship and sex education is a mandatory part of the curriculum, we still know that faith schools are nevertheless given a qualified exemption so they are allowed to teach their own religious ethos, which in many cases says that homosexuality is sinful, immoral, abnormal yep. and unnatural. And that, that has a very damaging effect on young LGBT plus kids in our schools where those schools are run by faith organisations. I was, um, I went to a, a private school in Scotland, in central Scotland, a sort of little Hogwarts-esque place in the, in the Oakle Hills. And um, I, I, I knew I was gay when I was like 13, 14, and was reading around all of the issues of being gay, sort of hoping, can't, couldn't wait to get out of this little village to go and, and, and participate in life. And I'd read about you at that time. So this was in about 2003, 2004. Um, and uh, one of the things I did, we, we had our school newspaper, of which I uh, was a, a frequent contributor writing terrible articles, just like 
awful prose. Um, and I, I wrote an article complaining that our school, it being a private school, didn't have to, uh, although the rest of the country had uh, responded to the repealing of Section 28, um, the private school didn't, like, they hadn't changed the sex education. I wasn't being taught anything about how to have safe sex as a gay person. So I wrote this article and they wouldn't let me print it, which began a lifelong frustration with censorship. Um, although I was taken in front of the deputy head teacher who basically explained, like, I wasn't in trouble because I thought, oh, I'm in trouble for writing this. And it, it wasn't that I was in trouble. It's that he said that they'd been thinking of making changes for a few years and that, but that there just hadn't been a sort of specific reason, like there hadn't been enough push but that he couldn't let me print the article because a lot of the parents of the kids at the school are paying a lot of money for their kids to be educated. And they don't actually have a clue what they're being taught in sex education. This would kick up a fuss were it to be published. Um, and the bargain he struck was that he was going to change it. So uh, from the year after, I gather that, that there was a more integrated uh, sex education for, you know, the class is younger than me. Um, so you'd inspired a sort of miniature local activism in me when I was, I think I must have been about 15 around that time, half a lifetime ago for me. Well, it just shows the power of one person. You know, it appears that as a result of you writing that article, even though it was not published, you prompted that change. So well done and bravo. Well, this is the thing is like, um, <laughs> The thing, the thing I had wanted to happen were, was that I I'd kind of thought the piece was just going to be a protest. You know, I didn't really think that there would be a change. And actually, the article didn't get printed, but then there was a change. So it's funny how things work out. Um, the Gay Liberation Front's campaigns about the rights of gay people in the 70s um, seemed to me to be about being left alone by the state. And I've heard you talk before about how... You know, the, there are some campaigns which are about equality and there are some campaigns that are about we don't want to be equal with a system that's not actually working for everyone anyway. Um, I've, I, some might argue that there's a hierarchy of desires and that after marginalised communities become legally equal, the, like the push seems to be now actually it's not just about being left alone by the government. It, you know, there was the transition to tolerance and then from tolerance, we want to be accepted. And nowadays, I feel like LGBT people, certainly in the media, we are celebrated, actually, by and large. Um, so that feels to me like we're in a good place. Um, but are we seeking validation at the expense of focusing our activism or our interest or our attention elsewhere? I'm thinking of places like Chechnya, um, or countries far flung where it feels kind of futile to do anything. Um, but at the same time, to me, it feels a bit like, certainly as far as gay rights go, like there's not that much to fight for here in the UK now, unless you want tiny details of same-sex marriage, unless you're going to marry a, a, a lord as a gay man and you want his hereditary title or something. You know, there's, there's not... What, what's, what, what's the fight now? And, and what are your thoughts on it? Well, first, let me say there's two outstanding issues. One is public opinion. Uh, we have made huge progress in changing public opinion. Back in the late 1980s, um, two thirds or more of the British public said that homosexuality was mostly or always wrong. Now it's down to 16%. Mostly sometimes wrong. <laughs> <laughs> now it's down to 16% who believe that homosexuality wow. is mostly always wrong. That's a, that's a huge fall, but it still is almost one in five of the British public. And I suppose also we need to qualify that they may believe that, but they may not treat a gay person badly. So it may be a belief rather than an action. Right. Um, but obviously there, there still is a sizable portion, a sizable minority portion of the population that sees a problem with um, same-sex attraction and desire. Um, so we need to work on that. And I've got to say that that minority tends to be quite vocal. Um, I'm not saying that they're all absolute bigots, but we know from the level of homophobic 
biophobic and transphobic abuse on Twitter and other social media. Uh, we know from the rising levels of reported um, anti-LGBT hate crimes in the street that um, there is this vocal minority and they're still out to get us. So that, that's unfinished business. Uh, when it comes to the law, going back to religion, you know, we've got some great equality laws, but they've all got qualified limited exemptions for religious organizations. Okay. You know, in certain circumstances to maintain their religious ethos, these religious organizations are still allowed in law to discriminate against LGBT plus people. And I'm not just talking about places of worship, but also faith-run schools, hospitals, nursing homes, and shelters for the homeless. They are still allowed to discriminate if they can demonstrate that it's necessary to maintain their religious ethos. Um, there are other issues, you know, we still are waiting for a ban on conversion therapy. The government promised this over three years ago, and we are still waiting. The government could tomorrow take and adapt the Victorian legislation, not the Victorian era, but the legislation from the Australian state of Victoria that bans conversion therapy. Uh, we can just take it over lock, stock and barrel and put it on the statute books before the end of the year. But the government won't do that. It's still hesitating. It's dithering again. It seems like such a small constituency to, for them to appeal to. I, I'd, imag I'd, I'd imagine it's underpinned by some sort of a sort of almost academic belief that individuals have the right to submit themselves to that therapy if they want to. Is, is, that, the, is that the resistance that's coming? Because, you know, that, that might be ideologically in alignment with what I would expect from some libertarian or conservative politicians. Uh, but it seems to ignore maybe what I would think of as, as the reality that it, that that it's not as simple as that, you know. <laughs> well, that's part of it. Um, you know, I think it is um, you know this libertarian belief that people should be able to decide to do what they want to with their own bodies and minds. Um, but the point is, it doesn't work. Right. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not only unethical and harmful and damaging. It, it's snake oil, it right? <laughs> it, it, absolutely, it, it, it's fake, and you know. There's been so many examples of people who've claimed they've been cured through these conversion therapies. And then a few years later, they've been caught out in gay clubs or saunas. So right. it's, it's a fraud. It's a fraud. Yeah. Um, and another issue we have to still deal with is reform of the Gender Recognition Act to make it easier for trans people to affirm their true identity in their legal documents. Uh, at the moment, it's a very long, drawn-out, complicated process. Yeah. There's a medical veto. You have to get doctor's authorization. Um, trans self-ID via a statutory declaration is an obvious way to go. And it, it exists in other European countries, and it hasn't been a problem. So why, why, why the delay? And then, of this course, there's the, there's the plight of um, LGBT people fleeing persecution in other countries who come to Britain to seek a safe haven and are refused asylum. You know, the rate of refusal for LGBT plus refugees is much higher than for religious, political or ethnic refugees. And many of these people are detained in detention centers, which are like prisons. Some of them have been imprisoned in their own home countries. They come here for safety and we stick them in a prison-like situation. Um, it's just so, so wrong. And then of course, you. you Go back to what you originally mentioned, there is the global picture where still almost 70 countries criminalize same-sex relations um, with penalties ranging from a few years imprisonment right up to life imprisonment. And half of these countries are members of the Commonwealth. The Commonwealth yeah. has a commitment to human rights for all citizens. And we, yeah, we exported a lot of countries. these laws, right? You know, we, in, our, right, yeah. in our imperial heyday, as some would have it, we, uh, we, we, we set up the institutions and the, the sort of the legislation that oppresses people today. Oops, yeah, that one is. We <laughs> homophobic laws to all these countries. Uh -huh. um, but, but they are now independent, so they can't use that as an excuse. You know, they're independent sovereign nations. They got rid of a lot of colonial era laws why are they keeping this one? It, it doesn't make sense and it's not right. 
And uh, we have to also recognize that um, in 11 countries, there is still the death penalty for same-sex relations. The yep. death penalty. Uh, and in 43 countries, either explicitly or by default, um, trans people can be criminalized. So on a global scale, there is still so much more work to be done. There's, there's a link, obviously, I mean, not least that our history from the past 50 years, at least, between the LGBT community has been a sort of family of, of uh, people marginalised for similar reasons. I, I've always felt that the origins of homophobia are in a form of misogyny. Um, and so, too, are the, are the, are the uh, objections to trans people, right? It seems to me like it's a hangover or a byproduct of pre-existing misogyny in, in, in societies. Um, of the issues you mentioned, the, the stuff around trans lives is the one that dominates a lot of the, it sucks a lot of the air out of the room uh, in the media at the moment. Like, it seems to me that there's a debate taking place around things like academic expression, around bathrooms, and it doesn't seem to be a comfortable or healthy conversation, um, which is is frustrating, I'm sure, for trans people, enormously frustrating. Um, I'm sure it's very frustrating for the people, uh, for, for, for the people on the other side of those those issues as well. There's a lot of shouting across at one another. It it strikes me that there's a lot of red herring stuff going on here, like. I'm not sure that at large our country and the people in it really have any particular objection en masse to people using the bathrooms they feel comfortable in um, or people identifying in, in, in the way that they identify. How, how have we got here? Why is it so toxic in that particular area? Is it just that we like to talk about talking and about language and discourse and so we'll always find the area of sort of intellectual dispute and then kill each other over it? I think it partly relates to the fact that some people are very prone to find enemies on their own side, that they're not pure enough or they're not oh, yeah. right on enough. Um, so a lot of trans critical feminists, um, you know, use the argument that trans women are a threat to other women. Right. That's a, that's a bit like saying that, you know, Muslims are a threat because a handful of Muslims are terrorists. Right. Yeah. yeah, no, yeah. no decent person would say that. No decent person would say that. You know, you, you can't generalize about all Muslims because of the unrepresentative actions of a tiny minority of extremists. Yeah. And nor can you generalize about trans people because of the uh, uh, untypical unrepresentative actions of a handful who may have done bad things. And that there are well, people in all communities who did bad things, but as a rule, we don't generalise and damn whole communities because of their actions. No, and I think that there's, you know... <sighs> people want to support the rights of others. The disagreements here seem to be about what the rights should be. And uh, it always surprises me when, when you hear the arguments that some that some feminists have around safety in bathrooms and their fear of predators. Um, you know, a, a predatory man pretending to ID as trans, that to me, one, I, I find quite unlikely. But also, uh, then we're not talking about trans people. We're talking about, uh, we're talking about interlopers. We're talking about exploiters of systems and roles. These are, these are bad people separate from. That says nothing on what the rights of trans people should be, right? It just seems to me like well, that, that's that's we're not that's the the two sides are actually having conversations about different things, and no one's getting through, and it's there's not a winner there, um, and it, that that miscommunication prevents there from being the kind of healing that happens uh, when you know we need to be communicating clearly in order to heal in order in, or, in order to connect properly and to see the humanity in one another one another. I mean, men who want to do bad things to women. I'm not going to bother to get trans ID and dress, us, dress no. up as a woman so they can get into a woman's toilet or changing room. No, they'll, they'll just, go in, they'll just go in and do it. You know, yeah, um, this... 
you know, it, 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 it's, uh, you know, a, a monstrous mischaracterization. Um, and, you know, you know, women, all women, including trans women, are victims of misogyny, discrimination, harassment, hate crime, and rape. They're all victims. So that surely gives all women, including trans women, a common interest in working together to challenge those attitudes and that behavior. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, trans women have been using women's toilets for decades. I've been using women's toilets. <laughs> like if I'm at a show and I, you know, I do shows in all sorts of strange places and in drag, it is, it is easier. There are more stall uh, cubicles. It is easier to use those toilets for 12 years. I have never once had anything uh, in the way of, of expressions of discomfort, uh, you know, and nobody is more predatory than I. Um, and, and, and it does, it just seems to be a non-issue. Um, which you know, you know I, I I went and did an interview at GB News, the right wing news channel, and yeah. I noticed they have unisex toilets. You know? <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they put on lots of programs very critical of trans people and the whole bathroom issue. Yet in their own studios, they have mixed toilets. Every, there's a cubicle for everyone. There's no standing urinals. Um, yeah. so everyone has privacy, but they have it in their own studios. Um, How interesting. And, you know, you go to a pop concert or, you know, a pride festival, they have unisex toilets there. No one ever complains about that. You know, the toilets there, it can be used by a man, a woman, a non-binary or trans person. Uh, it's a lot can be locked and secured. Yeah. There's no problem. So it's, it's a completely artificial and inflated and I think malicious argument to, to raise this as an issue. Well, it's easier. I think you touch on something when you say it, it's almost easier to find enemies on your own side. I feel like that uh, alleviates some burden of actually tackling problems. And that's I, th I think that the people on both sides of this do have I'm not impugning their motives. I think some women are anxious and frightened and some women are very chill and relaxed about all of these issues in the same same is true for trans for trans people, uh, trans women and trans men. Um, I, I want I, to ask I, you before. I was going to say, I, I can understand why women are concerned for women's safety. That's totally legitimate, understandable, and I support them. But it doesn't mean they could there, therefore need to exclude trans women from women's centres or, or, or events. Yeah, um, you don't throw the baby I, out of the bathwater. <laughs> absolutely. I, mean, I know some women who work at women's centres around the country, and one who works at a women's rape crisis centre they said that they have accepted trans women for years, yeah. most, mostly for four, five, six or seven years. They said there's never been a problem. But one yeah. of the centres told me that actually had a vote among the staff and among the women users whether to accept trans women. And the vote went overwhelmingly in favour of acceptance. There hasn't been a problem. So why create a problem when one doesn't exist? Every women's centre organisation I know, it vets everyone who comes into that centre. So yeah. the women's centre I'm going to refer to in the north of England, they say that every woman who comes in gets a criminal records check and gets other checks done to confirm that she is not a threat to other women. And let's not forget, this woman told me, some non-trans women can be a threat to other women. They perhaps have an alcohol or a drug problem, or they're just very aggressive. They're not trans, but they can be a threat to other women. Yet these feminists are not saying they should be banned. They're just targeting trans women. It is so, so, so wrong. Despite being someone who believes that we should all be talking more, I mean, I, I've always been, I'm an ardent supporter of free speech because I, I believe in listening to one another, actually. Um, but on this particular subject and a few others, sometimes I feel like our oversaturation of debate ends up causing, it's like a Tower of Babel effect, social media, the, the printed media, and just all this conversation, it confounds issues to the extent. And now I feel it's almost generated problems where to some, there weren't quite the same issues, actually, until this became a broad national debate. Um, I wanted to ask you one last thing before we wind up. Uh, because I'm an entertainer, first and foremost. 
Um, and uh, we have met, actually, I don't know if you would remember that we've, you've, you've come to a show I've done in the Crazy Cox when I was singing with songwriter Conleth Kane. And um, I've also met you at so many different openings, the LGBT switchboard, at the Rainbow List Awards. And I always go and say hello and we always have a nice little chat. But in my mind, I think, because I meet so many people, you might just be happy to see a drag queen at an event. And so we just have a bit of nice, friendly conversation and then and then move on. So I don't know if you've connected the string through these various different things. But um, so I'm an entertainer, but I have made clumsy forays into activism myself. And I think that it must be enough of a tightrope for you as an experienced campaigner um, to get your messaging crystal clear. Because at the end of the day, if you're not clear in your communications, activism kind of falls on its face. Um, and in this 24-hour media, social media environment where everyone is talking all the time, oversimplified narratives seem to be able to dominate. So what would your advice be to people listening or to me who may have their own drum to beat but are anxious about their efforts being misinterpreted? Um, and I think what I mean specifically by that is, you know, everyone's scared of getting cancelled in 2021. Um, for speaking out of turn. It's even, you know, we always want to be careful having the conversation we've just had around trans stuff. Um, what would your advice be for people who want to say something or do something, but they want to do it in the right way? Well, be careful that what you write or say isn't open to misinterpretation, but above all, stick up for what you believe in. And if you get a torrent of abuse on social media, just ignore it or, you know, mute it or, you know, go on and do something else positive and constructive. You know, there will always be people who criticise you, no matter what you say. You can be, you know, the most perfect, wonderful person in the world, but there'll be some people out there who find fault. But don't let the negative people drag you down because, right. sadly, um, responses tend to be mostly critical, less right. praising, but probably out there more people are supporting you than criticizing you. They just haven't bothered to send you a message. So just bear that in mind when, when you get any kickback. But also, yeah. of course, you know, if possible, get your friends and supporters and allies to pile in and defend you. You know, and, and whatever you do, don't resort to the kind of abuse and insults that criticize no. you. That, that, just, that just shows them to be small, petty people. Don't stoop to their level. Just whatever, my motto is, Whatever people say at me, I just respond with politeness and courtesy. Yeah. I think that, that, shines, it, that shines through in the end. That's That's been my own experience is that, you know, I've managed to diffuse circumstances in the past. I was involved in a, in a free speech event, a free speech rally, which brought me shoulder to shoulder with unsavory characters. Um, I felt free speech was worth standing shoulder to shoulder with unsavory characters to defend. But... Um, I have found that actually not being a reactionary figure myself, um, I'm softly spoken, I, I actually want to connect with people. I do think that that's helpful. And I do, I, I've done some seminars for, uh, uh, for free speech organizations where I encourage young people, like in this day and age, if you're going to take part in social media, that's, um, and the swarm of locusts comes, the plague of locusts, and you're getting, you know, lots of things. You've just got to batten down the hatches. I think some people see that as a crisis and then feel they have to radically rethink everything. But actually, it's 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 part of leaving the house in a way is that you're going to risk people's opprobrium. And you've been a brilliant example through your work that slow and steady wins the race. And that actually, when you've got something that you know is important to people you care about around the world, um, your continued efforts and honesty and humanity and compassion will win through in the end. So thank you for all of the work you've done, Peter. Well, thank you. And it's been a great honour to work with so many amazing people over many decades, all who, together with me, helped make these changes possible. Can Wonderful. I just conclude by saying that um, if anyone's interested, um, please go to my foundation website, petertatchellfoundation.org. In the top right-hand corner, there's a little button which says, join us. If you click on that and give us your email address, we will send you a weekly bulletin on a range of LGBT plus and other human rights issues. It's um, a combination of 
serious stuff, but also we usually try and find a quirky story as well. It's qu quite, quite informative and sometimes quite entertaining and good fun. And it's totally free, there's no charge. But if you want to make a donation, next to the join us button on the top right hand corner of the homepage is the donate button. And we depend entirely on donations from well-wishers to carry on our work. So if you can afford a small, you know, monthly donation, that would be really fantastic. That would help us carry on. Um, so finally, I'll just conclude with my motto, which I hope will inspire you. It's very simple. Don't accept the world as it is. Dream of what the world could be and then help make it happen. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. So that was uh, Peter Tatcho, human rights activist extraordinaire. Um, I'm really excited that I'll be talking to guests from quite serious lines of work like Peter Tatcho throughout the course of these 10 episodes. But I do want to keep it real as well. So that's why every episode we're going to have a special guest from the world of cabaret for what we call Queen's Corner. And today's queen is none other than my pal, Lady Lloyd. How are you doing, girl? Oh, vanity, my darling, you are looking fabulous. Mm. Oh, I was expecting a beefier gal. The great thing about a podcast is people just have to accept it when you say that I look fabulous. I could be in a string vest um with seven chins and you know hair in all the wrong places well, for all counting yeah so listen we um we work around gays and lesbians and transgender people all the time so we wouldn't necessarily Are you sick of them yet <laughs> well uh, everybody has their ups and downs um but like peter tatchell is a uh, is a person who paved the way for us to be able to live mm. so openly don't you think i feel like he's he's our daddy he is. I feel like it's the first serious person that I remember seeing and hearing about. Uh, and as I was coming into London at about 13, I remember his name. I obviously don't feel like I would have been interested in what he was talking about back then, but I remember yeah. the name from just going out. You know, I was interested in uh, Smirnoff Ice and the Astoria. So, <laughs> but I knew about him, you know, he was that yeah. present in the, in the scene and uh, around town. As somebody important, I knew I knew he was important, but I, I didn't really know much about him until much later. A lot of people kind of get on with life and focus on building their friendships and having a good time. And then there's mm -hmm. some people I think who are quite because I was a little bit of like I wouldn't say a politics geek growing up, mm. but I, I was quite interested. I was very human rightsy, like I, I was right. like all into Amnesty International as a teenager. Yeah, so, so I wasn't at all, unsurprisingly. You were already. I was the worried spinning. why Jerry Halliwell removed those uh, blonde stripes for the tour. I was very upset about that at the time. Uh, so I kind of didn't didn't get involved in anything to do with politics really until I worked with Vivian Westwood. But you would have had. I mean, obviously, some people know that there was a homophobic attack that mm -hmm. we discussed when we were on Drag Queens of London. Like mm. when you were a teenager, it wasn't necessarily easy sailing just being gay, was no. it? No. No, I mean, I kind of took it on the chin and it's affecting me more now, now that I'm older. I feel very sad for my younger self. Yeah. Um, even though I was very, I suppose, brave and just got on with it and kind of turned it all into laughter and camp and, oh, yeah, I was, I was beaten up, oh, blah, 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 blah. Many times, you know, quite aggressively and badly, it didn't, it didn't resonate with that. You know, they, they, those people could have killed me at the time. You know, they tried yeah. to. They tried to throw me off a bridge onto a train track. And I I went out to GAY that night, you know. <laughs> yeah. So I kind of just, you know, you push, pushed all that dreadfulness aside when I was younger. And, and now that I'm older, I think, oh, God, you know, that was terrible things that happened to me. Um, so... So now, now that I'm older, now is the serious part of my life, I feel. Yeah. So I am acknowledging, you know, what Peter Tatchell does and yeah, what human rights are and how we can help people because I want to help myself. So, you know, yeah. empathy kind of comes with age, I think. I agree. Some people have, I sometimes think some people have a luxury to be 
empathetic in a certain way when they're younger, but actually some defense mechanisms. I think about this about drag queens. Mm. I think the best drag queens have a real outsider perspective. And that's a really good thing for making somebody a comedian or an interesting Mm -hmm. artist or a dynamic personality uh, in the clubs. But at the same time, you only get that outsider perspective by going through tough times. So a lot of drag queens, I know, especially drag queens of our generation, because we're in our early 30s, Mm -hmm. kind of had to have that edge in order to, that's what drove us to be interesting creatives. Younger people now, I I think, it's they don't have the same um perspective or fire in their belly yeah i i think we were reading a lot about people from our age now referencing like section 1028 i'm i see lots of people mentioning that and how that's had like a lasting effect on them yeah so and i think i think it has on all of us who were in school at that time that Mm. we just weren't allowed to be mentioned or helped really yeah you know every time I mean something happened every day for me and it just was you know under rug swept yeah par for the course what was mm-hmm. it like with your yeah and sort of like get on with it you know did you have because I think that's differently from racism and obviously you know people are, are dealing with and struggling with racism and lots of different issues to do with gender identity but mm-hmm. One of the things about being gay is like your family aren't gay. So um, uh, yeah, okay. you're kind yeah. of an outsider in the home in a lot mm-hmm. of instances, or at least you yeah. suspect you might be, or you're afraid to mm. come out. Um, I, I remember whenever, I mean, and my parents are so lovely, really nice people, um, never had any, any difficulties with them, but they obviously must have, everybody, everybody knew I was gay at 11, 12. So they obviously knew too, but every time a George Michael came on the telly, it was it was laughter. Uh, he's as bent as a nine bob no and things like that. You know, here he is. Uh, you know, George Michael takes up the arse, things like that. And I would just sit there mortified, thinking, oh, "Fuck, you know, what do they think of me?" Yeah, and and you know, they asked me outright if I was gay when I got beaten up. I remember saying that it wasn't a homophobic attack. Um, because I was so embarrassed. Yeah. Even though I was wandering around in my fucking Spice Girls jacket and camp as you like to sort of to 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 verify the connection, I found quite difficult. You know, a lot of people don't have to sit their parents down and say, Mom, I'm gay. I know. Well, that's, that's you know, like, it just it, it becomes a given. Like that's mm. like a YouTube generation meme. Right. Like, yes, it is I find a, it so creepy when people like film their parents' reaction. I know. Oh Because to me, that you only ever anything do that. that should be personal should be personal. Oh. Yeah, it's weird. Keep it's it like, private. I mean, These are important people, moments, you know. Do you ever see a like negative one? I don't say anyone sit their mum down and say I'm gay. Then their mum <laughs> throws the holy water. Gets, at a, them. gets a frying pan and whacks it out of them. Don't be so stupid. <gasps> Well, and, you know, um, have you have you met Peter Tatchell before? I'm sure you must have. I've, I've met him a... on on a few marches. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've met him on quite a few marches. I find him very very interesting. I find him very um, uh, sort of singular. You know. Yeah. I feel like he's he's just the one. Um, so I'm always interested in listening to what he has to say, and I like that 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 he says it. I like him. You know, yeah. I like that yeah. it's him that's got the megaphone. You know what I mean? Because sometimes we pass the megaphones to people that are fucking idiots. Oh, 100%. Um, his documentary, which is on Netflix now, Hating Peter Tatchell, he was, uh, well, he's obviously talked about it a bit with me. I mean, a brilliant title. I know. Above, um, above everything. So. Yeah, it makes you want to know more. Um, mm-hmm. And I know you haven't seen it yet, so you do need to watch it. Mm-hmm. And, I do. I know. Like, I know. You know. Because it, it's like I said to him, it's kind of almost like a thriller. You realise it's quite sometimes okay, wow, dangerous, yeah. exciting work like that mm-hmm. he's done. And it's different from the type of activism that people do from a very comfortable um, environment, you know, at, sat at home. Like he's very much like he's a, he's right. a, a guerrilla activist. Yeah. He's on the streets. He's yeah. in the cold. He's got his placard. He's running away from police. He's travelling mm-hmm. abroad. And it's, yeah, it's quite, it's, a, it's almost like the James Bond of, of, of queer activism. An interesting life. 
Well, Lady Lloyd, hopefully we'll have you back for Queen's Corner uh, later. Well, in- hold on, because there hasn't uh, been any mention of Shania. Oh, that's true. But Shania Twain has actually not agreed to come on as a guest yet. So. Oh. Well, you must tell her that I've been on and uh, she will don the leopard print and make her way. I have like high, I have high minded notions that this podcast will be so, you know, interesting, stimulating. We'll have philosophers and scientists and all these people on it. But at the same time, I'm like, maybe after a few episodes, it's just going to end up being like me talking about Celine Dion to people. (laughs) There is room for Celine. There is room for Shania. Well, perhaps that'll be later on in the series. We've got uh, nine episodes ahead of us after today. And who knows what they have in store. Lady Lloyd, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, darling. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.